our Heavenly Father, on this Easter Sunday morning, we cannot help but remember the amazing gift that you have given us in your Son, Jesus, who gave everything so that we could find a renewed relationship with you. We thank you that we recognize through Christ that all good gifts come from heaven and come from you. And so as we worship you, not only with our praises, but with our tithes and offerings, we thank you that we are simply giving back out of the abundance with which you have blessed us. And we ask that you would receive our worship this morning as our thanks and out of gratitude in our hearts for all that you have done for us. And speak to us this morning, God, through your word. Help us to understand that word that you have for each one of us, which is a, an invitation to see life in a new way, a call to live life in a new way, and the opportunity, God, to celebrate the goodness that every day is a new day with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we slowly move into whatever this new normal is going to be, one of the things I think is really important for us to pay attention to uh, as individuals, as families, as churches, as a society, is how our recent experience of the pandemic and the increased polarization that we see happening in our society, and if you pay attention to what's happening in Ukraine, <laughs> in our world, and how this polarization and, and the effects of the pandemic uh, continue to impact our relationships on all these levels. In some ways, the pandemic has helped many of us to reevaluate our priorities and uh, actually to begin to set a new course for a different possible future for our work, our family, how we spend our time, what we think is important. And yet at the same time, I think we're also recognizing that even as we, we try to move forward and even as we try to renew our hope, there's still an increased strain on, on our lives and there's a, a continuing emotional drain that, that, it, that drains our reserves and that has an ongoing impact not only on how we're feeling personally, but on our relationships around us. I think if you think about your relationships this morning for a moment, those relationships that might be slightly fractured somehow or have become strained or awkward either recently or in the past that, that continue to be broken. It could be, here at, uh, it could be at work or here at church. It could be with a, a family member in your house or an extended family member. It could be with a friend or a neighbor that you live near. If you think about these relationships... Wouldn't you say it's true? Couldn't you agree with me this morning that if they would just see things your way, everything would be all right? Amen. Right? Amen. That's what I'm telling you, right? Aren't you glad that you've come to a church that's going to help you this morning? I mean, as, as I think about my relationship with my wife, Tammy, right? She usually sees things her way, and I usually see things the right way. And it doesn't always make sense to me, right? Why we can't seem to make progress when we find ourselves in conflict and we try and work through it and we, and we can't seem to get out of these conflicts. And I try really hard. I do. I try so hard to help her understand that if she would just see things my way, <laughs> everything would be all right. Do you ever feel that way about <laughs> any of your relationships this morning? Well, for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about uh, challenging relationship dynamics and try to solve the mystery that you and I have been struggling with for years. And that question is, what's wrong with these people? 
So the title of our new series is How to Get People to See Things Your Way, <laughs> which of course is the right way. Because until they do, they're just holding up progress, right? They're keeping the relationship in turmoil and ruining another holiday family meal. Sorry for those of you who are going out to lunch this afternoon. So I'd like to suggest that in order to get people to see things your way and to acknowledge that they are the ones who are holding things up, you have to master the tools of effective relationship management because everybody knows, right, that people have to be managed. So I came across a really helpful tool that I want to share with you all today, and it's called the C4 Approach to Relationship Management. Now, some of you might quickly notice that there's a relationship to a common known plastic explosive called C4, but I assure you, it has nothing <laughs> to do with, with that at all. It's just a coincidence. So this approach uh, initially promises to bring people together, but in reality, what it does is it will get them to come to your direction right? So that they can see the world the way you see it and come to agree with you. So there's four key elements, components to this approach. So we call them the four C's of relationship management. And those are convince, convict, <laughs> coerce, and control, right? <laughs> amen, right? Where's an amen for that, right? See, in, in order to manage people well, you need to work at mastering the art of convincing them to see things your way. And then you also have to master the art of convicting them that they're the ones who are in the wrong. And if you can do that, then you can begin to coerce them into doing the things that you want them to do. If you have any doubt about the effectiveness of these tools, just think about how effective they've been at bringing our nation together. <laughs> and if you're still not convinced, Check out these testimonials from people who have actually tried the C4 method. The C4 approach to relationship management has completely turned our marriage oh, around. Absolutely. <laughs> so close to just failing, you know? <laughs> All four C's are complete game changers. Convince, coerce, convict, and control. <laughs> if there was a fifth C, it'd be cool. <laughs> Six months ago, I was gonna take a week and a half off from my wedding and honeymoon. The day before I headed out to the resort, Lisa told me that she needed a pitch deck done in a day and a half. And what did I say? You said, looks like you'll need to postpone that wedding. <laughs> My relationship with my son has always been very interesting. He loves acting, but I love football. He's my son, he lives in my house, so he should be playing my favorite sport. The C4 approach to relationships understands that and helps me call all the right plays. I can't wait to try my costume. Uniform. And then go to my audition. Tryouts. Hey, what do you do when you score? You bow. Spike it. Son, <laughs> you spike it. Check out the C4 approach to relationships ASAP. You'll learn things like how to shame journal, 
I started a shame journal myself, and it's just a detailed list of every time that Emily has hurt me or let me down. And now, when we have an argument, I just read her a few entries, and before you know it, she sees things my way. I've been journaling since eighth grade. See what I mean? Doesn't that sound good? There's just one word of caution here, and it's really important that you don't share this content with the other people in your life. Because as crazy as it may seem, and I know it's a little bit of a stretch, but truth be told, they think you're the one with the problem. (laughs) And if they get a hold of this explosive tool, it just might be liable that you're the one moving in their direction. After all, you respond well, don't you, to being convinced and convicted and coerced and controlled? Isn't that the the very things that draw you into intimacy in a relationship? Of course not. Obviously, you've known from the beginning that this is all the opposite of what we're supposed to do, right? These things don't help anybody. In reality, we naturally resist all four of these things, and yet, if you really think about it and you pay attention to the ways that you interact with people in your relationships when you find yourself getting into conflict, these are the tools that we most often reach for when trying to find reconciliation. But they only serve to make things worse. We think that we're working hard to try and resolve the conflict, but but nothing ever fully gets resolved because we're only playing into the very dynamic with which we're trying to resolve. And then we also begin to tell ourselves, well, you know, I tried. There's nothing more I can do about it. And, And as central as relationships are to our lives, you would think that relationships would be easy to fix and to repair and to manage, but the opposite is true. Relationships are one of the most difficult, challenging mysteries that we face in our lives. So actually, we're starting a new four-part series today, but it's actually going to be called Reassembly Required, A Beginner's Guide to Repairing Broken Relationships. In this series, we're going to look at some of the key decisions that you and I can make to pave the way towards genuine reconciliation in our broken relationships with other people. Pastor Andy Stanley says, relationships are like cars. We're better at starting them and driving them than repairing them. (laughs) Starting a relationship is intuitive, but maintaining one, maintaining one is only somewhat intuitive. And fixing one? That's not intuitive at all. So our initial moves are often the wrong moves. I'm going to move this because it's distracting me. So we know that these tools don't work, right? Convincing people, coercing them, convicting them, controlling them. Uh, Yet these are the common tools that we always reach for. And sometimes I want to suggest that we're not even aware that this is what we're doing when we're trying to communicate with someone we care about. For example, you may have used this phrase or this phrase has been maybe used with you, I'm sorry if I offended you, right? The statement doesn't feel controlling to the user, but it does to the receiver because uh, the user thinks, see, I'm I'm moving in your direction. I'm trying to fix this relationship. I'm not acknowledging that you have feelings. But what this actually communicates to the receiver is, you know, you're too easily offended. 
What I said wouldn't offend most other people, but you, you have to decide that you're going to be offended by it. See, which is simply saying in a, in a kind of backhanded way that I'm not the one with the problem, you are. <laughs> or here's another statement that's both kind of convicting and a little coercive, right? Yet it doesn't feel like this to the user. I said, I'm sorry, why are you still upset? Translation, I've done my part. You should be fine now. Get over it. Since you're not fine, the problem must not be with me. It must be with you. (laughs) See, fixing and repairing a damaged relationship isn't intuitive. It doesn't come naturally. It's not easy. Relationships don't come with instructions included, and too often we reach for all the wrong tools and say all the wrong things in trying to make headway in a situation. In reality, reassembling a broken relationship is a learned skill. It's something we have to work at. It's something we have to learn. It's something we have to practice in order to be able to do it well. And the reality is most of us weren't taught this skill in in our own homes growing up. Most of us have not seen this modeled in the relationships that we've been a part of. You've probably seen this dynamic played out in your own family or in other networks of relationships or at work. Something happens or something is said that's upsetting to someone, which then creates a rift in the relationship. And on one level, it seems kind of silly, right? You start to think, why don't they just talk about it? Why don't they just get over it? But they get stuck somehow, and they don't know how to begin. And whatever they try only seems to make things worse. And so the ultimate conclusion is simply to cut off relationship altogether. You see, when relationships get strained, we tend to fall into the trap of waiting, rehearsing, and avoiding The trap of waiting for the other person to take responsibility to make the first move. And and while we're waiting, we spend time rehearsing in our minds, right, our version of the story, which we're reminding ourselves of why we're so upset. And then we avoid seeking resolution to the problem because we think there's really nothing more that can be done or what we've tried hasn't worked and so, so we can't go on anymore because you don't know what to do and you end up waiting for the other person to do that, what we really don't realize is that you're the one who really should be making the first move. If you think about it, right, as you're rehearsing the story in your head, you're the one who's right, the other person's wrong, that must mean you're the better person, right? So shouldn't the better person make the first move? The challenge is that this is always easier said than done. It's hard to even know how to begin, and we have to acknowledge that there's risk involved, right? There's risk of rejection. We don't know if our efforts will be received, and it's hard to know if taking that first step will even make a difference. Well, in this series, one of the things I hope that we can do together is to take some of the pressure off as it relates to reassembling our relationships. And to do this, I think an important first step is to understand that the the goal is not reconciliation. Now, you might say that sounds a little weird because you would think that that's really what the end game is supposed to be. And while it is, that can't be our first goal because you don't have control over all the pieces. You can't control the other person. We can work toward reconciliation. We can pray and hope that reconciliation can happen, but it's not 
the goal. Because when we set our goal of reconciliation, what we're unwittingly doing is we're creating an agenda for the other person and an expectation that they have to meet. When the expectation is that the other party moves in your direction and meets your expectations in order to meet the goal of reconciliation, we're unwittingly introducing an agenda for the other person into the relationship. And, and I don't know about you, but I think most people I know, we can sense when somebody has an agenda for us coming from a mile away, right? And so we may mistakenly believe that we're genuinely seeking to love the other person and seeking reconciliation, and we might even try and use words that suggest that we are, when all the while we've set it up from the very beginning to only be on our terms. So as we move through this series, we'll be talking about how the goal isn't reconciliation, the goal is no regrets. You see, no regrets is knowing that we've done everything in our power, everything possible to try and work towards reconciliation. We've opened the door. We've put the welcome mat out. We've removed the unnecessary obstacles. We've committed to talk as often as is necessary in order to work toward reconciliation with the other person. See, when we set ourselves as, the goal, as a goal of no regrets, we begin to take the pressure off the other person because there's no expectation of what they're going to do, and we take the pressure off of ourselves because we don't have to manufacture a reconciliation because we can't control what the other person's going to choose. Instead, we come with the sole agenda of doing everything that's within our power to work toward the goal of having no regrets from our side. No matter whose fault it is or how much blame sits with you or the other person, we begin to recognize that we always have a part to play when it comes to working towards reconciliation, which really brings up the question, why are we talking about this on Easter Sunday morning? <laughs> well, we're talking about this today on Easter Sunday because if you really think about it, the redemption story of how God has reconciled the rebel human race to himself is the heart of what the Easter story is really all about. Reconciliation is the operative definition of the Christian faith. Christianity is all about restoring relationships. And in this story, forgiveness is only half the equation. See, I can forgive you and not reconcile with you. According to the Bible, reconciliation is the intended outcome of God's forgiveness. Yet too often in the church, I think we separate the two. And it can be easy to say that, that we forgive someone, but it's much more inconvenient to actually do the work of reconciliation. Forgiveness is easier because in forgiveness, I hold all the cards. I can control the process. God forgives me. I forgive you. You should get over it. But the Bible tells us that God was not content to simply forgive you. God's forgiveness was a means to a greater purpose. God forgives to remove the obstacle to relationship and reconciliation, which is our own brokenness and sin. The real end is reconciliation and is a, a reassembled relationship with our Heavenly Father, with the God who created us, with the God who knows us better than we know ourselves, the God who we cannot hope to find or reach or attain in our own goodness or strength or wisdom. This is the God who took the first step to come toward us, to meet us where we are. 
And in a reassembled relationship with our Heavenly Father, we begin to learn through His example and the example of His Son Jesus how to find reassembled relationships with our fellow human beings. You see, according to Jesus, the two are inseparable. They're interrelated. You can't have one without the other. For followers of Jesus, what we're talking about is not optional. This is the Christian life. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. But when we reduce Christianity simply to meaning that that we've received the gift of God's forgiveness, so now we don't need to worry about anything else because we've got our ticket to heaven and one day we're going to live forever, we miss the whole purpose for why God gave us his forgiveness to begin with. We risk missing his goal, and and the goal is to understand how much he actually loves you and misses you and wants to be with you and wants to begin to reassemble the brokenness that you have in your relationship with him. Because as you allow him to begin to repair the brokenness in your relationship with him and the brokenness in your own spirit, you become better able to be a person who repairs the brokenness in your relationships with other people. It's God's love in us that, that works out of us to allow us to become the kind of people who actually can be good at repairing broken relationships. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus commanded us to do for others what he had done for us. John 13, 34, he says, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I wasn't content to just forgive you. I went the extra mile. I paid the ultimate price to show you my love. To, or, to, to show you that God wants to be in a reconciled relationship with you and to, to reassemble your relationships with the people around you. And this is how I want you to begin to pursue relationships with others. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2.5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Which relationships is Paul talking about? All of them right? It's like Paul is saying, in all your relationships, from from now moving forward, pursue them in the same way that you've seen your heavenly Father pursue you through His Son, Jesus, demonstrating His love not only through the forgiveness that He gives, but in taking that first step toward reconciliation and reassembling relationship before you even were ready to say yes to Him. And so what was the mindset of Jesus? That's where Paul goes on in verse 6, and he says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus reveals for us that reassembling relationships in our own lives requires being willing to move in the direction of the person who is unreconciled. And if we choose to follow Jesus, we too will become people who learn to do the same. 
So I want you to plan to join me next Sunday when we uh, start part two of how to get people to see things your way. I mean, sorry, well, reassembly required. (laughs) And we'll take a look at how we, even as beginners, can begin to learn to repair the brokenness in our own relationships. And as we explore further what it actually looks like to follow Jesus in our own lives and to become a part of the good news message that Jesus came to deliver us from our Heavenly Father by giving His life and rising again from the dead so that through His power and His Holy Spirit who is with us and within us, allows us to begin to be reconciled to God so that we can begin to reconcile with one another. Amen? Dear God, we thank you that you are a generous God who has lavishly poured out your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness on us. Help us not to take those gifts for granted, but to remember that the purpose for why you have given us the gift of forgiveness and grace is so that we too can learn to offer forgiveness and grace in our own relationships and begin to work toward reassembling the brokenness within our human family. God, forgive us for the ways that we tend to want to use the C4 approach to relationship management and thinking that somehow people are to be managed rather than loved. Allow us to be able to see the goodness of your grace through your son Jesus and to use his example as our model for how to begin anew in every relationship that we have. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.